Welcome to Planet Poetry. My name's Peter Kenny. And I'm Robin Houghton. And our theme for this episode is Untold Stories. Peter talks with outstanding Native American poet, author and scholar, Leanne Howe. And Robin reviews one of the UK's foremost poetry magazines. Meanwhile, Peter talks about nothing at length, I might add. But first, let's hear his interview with Leanne Howe. Leanne Howe writes poetry, fiction, non-fiction and screenplays. She is the Edison Distinguished Professor at the University of Georgia. Howe is a United States artist, USA Ford Fellow, as well as the recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Native Writers Circle of the Americas. An American Book Award and an Oklahoma Book Award. She was also a Fulbright Distinguished Scholar to Jordan and her most recent collection of poetry is Savage Conversations. So welcome to Planet Poetry, Leanne. It's such a delight to have you on our podcast. Can you tell our listeners where in the world you are and what it's like there right now? Oh, thank you for having me, Peter. I am in Georgia right now. I teach at the University of Georgia, and the weather here couldn't be better. There's not a cloud in the sky. All the trees are blooming. Uh, pink, uh, yellow. So um, it's really lovely outside. So you've been kind enough to join us to talk about a project you've worked on as an executive associate editor. You worked with Joy Harjo and Jennifer Elise Forrester, as well as a host of contributing editors and regional advisors to create the Norton Anthology of Native Nations Poetry. And the title of it is When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through. That strikes me as a beautiful title. Can you tell me where that came from? It is from one of the poems in the collection. And Joy came with that title. And I thought it was beautiful as well in terms of situating the creative voice of the book. But it also opened up the space for tribal people, uh, native people, indigenous people in North America. We worked on editing the book two and a half years, maybe maybe three. The reason the title is important, I think, is because the editors met in a couple of locations in the United States, pulling people together from this region or that region. Uh, Joy and I once met in Atlanta and she's in from Oklahoma as well and the Creek Nation Muscogee Creek Nation is there in Oklahoma as is the Choctaw Nation so I believe we met there as well so the project actually the book itself wanted I think wanted to be published the book is broken into regions Yes. So those uh, regional editors worked so well, and they worked well when we got together with them. So think of this as a, a large powwow that comes together, and our community 
the northern dance, the southern dance, the east and the west came together and in this round dance way collaborated to put the book together. So it's it's quite a spiritual journey, I think, as well as an intellectual project. And uh, and it was very emotional, I think, um, when we realized what it is that we had. You belong to the Choctaw Nation. How does that identity shape your life as a writer? Because these nations exist within the the U.S., but they've been there for far longer. Time memorial. You know, we're originally, and this would go for Joy and Jennifer as well, we're originally people who are from the southeast, where I'm coming to you from, Georgia, which is kind of in the heart of that old southeastern homelands. So uh, the Choctaws, Chickasaws, the Muscogee Creeks, Seminole, are from, and the Cherokees, are from the southeast. And we're very old communities, our uh, Naniwaya, because Choctaws are mound builders. So Naniwaya is well over 2,000 years old. That's our mother mound in Mississippi. So having been raised up in the east, out of the, literally out of the dirt, the Choctaws were removed in 1830. We're the first nation to be removed by Andrew Jackson's government. And we then began what you may have heard of is called the Trail of Tears. So the Choctaws are the first to take that walk. We lost a fourth of our population from starvation, many diseases. And by the time we get to Oklahoma in 1831, 1832, We've already lost a quarter of our population. That dying continued uh, until we could stabilize ourselves because you have to realize coming to Oklahoma, we had some rivers and um, some waterways, but by and large, the landscape in Oklahoma was new and barren. And so we dang near starved to death before we could get ourselves situated in our new homelands, which are in Durant, Oklahoma. If I may quote from the introduction uh, that Joy Harjo wrote, she says, we are more than 573 federally recognized indigenous tribal nations in the mainland United States. 231 are located in Alaska alone. We speak more than 150 indigenous languages At contact with European invaders, we were estimated at over 112 million. By 1650, we were fewer than 6 million. Today, we are one half of 1% of the total population of the United States. And this is the bit that really blew my mind. Imagine the African continent with one half of 1% of indigenous Africans, and you might understand the immensity of the American Holocaust. When I began to think about this, you know, the consequences of of the European, you know, quotation marks, discovery of what became the US, it really just gave me shivers. I don't think I've re- ever read anything in an introduction to a poetry book that's affected me so profoundly. But it made me also feel just how precious the gathering together of this writing was. It's almost like finding texts from a lost continent or, or some kind of Atlantis, you know. I find it inspiring how this legacy of such hurt and wrong being used to move forward. And this 
it just seems to me this book is a, an absolutely immense step. Is it the first such anthology of its kind? It's not the first, but it's the first in which Native editors, Native writers put this book together. So it's very unique in the way it's framed, in the way that we conceive the book. It's also very unique. It costs a lot to remember all of those hardships. And yet at the same time, most of us from the Southeast uh, and that end up in Oklahoma as my tribe did, we honor the elders, our elders who made our life possible. We would not exist if it hadn't been for their pervasiveness and determination to live. And that is something that our tribe and the communities in Oklahoma do at every gathering. We remember our survival, remember the people who brought us there and what that sacrifice contained. It is remarkable in and of itself. The other piece of this that I think is so unusual, well, it's not unusual in the the fact that we are giving people, but one of the first acts that the Choctaw Nation did was to collect and send money to the Irish during the Irish potato famine. So we did that at a gathering in March of 1847. We're just getting on our feet and collected what is said to be about $170 and sent it to Ireland. So that the generosity of our nation really, and the life ways that we are trained to be a part of from childhood up, we give, we give. And we are the people who help other people. And that's part of our tribal ethos as Choctaw people, we give. And I think that's why we have that special relationship even today with the Irish people. And our chief, Gary Batten, has gone to Ireland to meet with President Michael Higgins, uh, the Irish president, and to commemorate that act of giving and the generosity that now the people of Ireland are showing to other uh, impoverished and destitute Native nations. So all of that is contained in the poetry in this book. It's a spirit that lives within us, you know, even today. It's just amazing how that act of kindness coming from a position of such hardship has played out and magnified itself and created connections across a massive ocean. About 25 years ago, I went traveling in Mexico. I started off in Mexico City and then went south to uh, Oaxaca and the Yucatan Peninsula and so on. I was mainly looking at um, architectural sites. But it sort of struck me when I came back to the United Kingdom, there were a multitude of books about the ancient civilizations of, you know, Mesoamerica and the Mayans and Incas and Olmecs and so on. And it seemed to me that in Mexico, the story of the, the native people although terribly disenfranchised, is still an absolutely essential part of Mexico's story. 
But from my ill-informed European standpoint, you know, the story of the First Nations seems, you know, much harder to glimpse, really. And uh, is it the fact that apart from mounds and things, there's not so much kind of archaeology or is it is it something completely different, something about the nature of the U.S.? In terms of, of not recognizing all of our achievements. So let's look at our extraordinary gifts that we have given as people um, to the rest of the world. 70% of the world's vegetation that they eat in terms of plants are from the new world, from us. And that means from women. And the Southeast is known for our extraordinary gifts of food, potatoes, tomatoes, of course, sweet potatoes, beans of all kinds. And chilies. And chilies, of course, and chilies. And that food represented and helped think of the calories that the potato has been able to give to people in countries around Europe uh, that were starving. Those are gifts, and those are gifts from our mothers and our distant ancestors who grew these vegetables knowing that they would sustain us. And, and corn, of course. We have the story of tanchi that was brought to us in kernels, and we raised corn. So if you look at that on a global scale, you think, well, my goodness, we are the gift that kept giving and giving today. It's not just monetary, but it's the very lifeblood that sustained peoples in famine. Uh, and what a marvelous living legacy it is that, you know, something you people put in their mouths every single day. You know, that's more of a memorial than a building somewhere, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a living thing. I wanted to perhaps just dip in to the anthology a little. One of the themes is that special and enduring relationship with the land. And this poem, uh, This Is How They Were Placed For Us by Lucy Tapahonso, actually portrays the land as, as being a teacher to the people and that people learn things from it. There's wonderful descriptions of various mountains and so on. I wonder, Leanne, if I could ask you to read just the, the last few lines of that poem. And so this is Lucy's words who I want to ask her forgiveness for potentially butchering her poem. So, Lucy, I love this, by the way, I love this poem. All these were given to us to live by, these mountains and the land kept us strong. From them and because of them, we prosper. With this we speak and with this we think and with this we sing, with this we pray. This is where our prayers began. And so it's a wonderful mantra to think about that poetry is also a song. It's a prayer and it's words that we, we think of when it comes to the land. You know, the, the land is our mother. Mm. And as that process, uh, the Choctaws built mounds all over the southeast along with the Muscogee Creeks, who are also mound builders. And today, some of the five tribes have built and are re-enacting the mound building traditions in Oklahoma 
my family got to Oklahoma in 1832 in what is around McAllister, Oklahoma. And so my family is still there. So it's it's not something that we take for granted being from the southeast and removed to Oklahoma. If you think about it, the five tribes were removed in a very big way. Uh, and many of our other, and thank heaven, I guess many of the other Native nations, if you look to the west, if you look to the north and the northeast, as well as the plains, those tribes are not removed. But we were. So we were an experiment. And I think that we succeeded in, in living and thriving uh, where they had hoped for our destruction. You know, let's just put, let's not put a fine point on it. We were supposed to die out and we didn't. This idea of uh, doing an experiment with an entire people is is a very dark idea indeed, isn't it? It's a forerunner of what happens in the 20th century. Yes. Um, and the social experimentation, uh, the starvation. Oh, there's no water over there, so you have to go sit over there. These kinds of actions really are defining moments for what happens in the 20th century. So I'm happy we're alive and well, and we have surpassed all expectations. You know, when I was a little kid, um, I remember my one of the women in my school, I'm, I think I'm in the seventh grade, and she told me, you know, they were interviewing uh, all of us. And I was pontificating as a little kid about what I thought I wanted to do. And she says, the best you're ever going to be able to do, honey, is maybe you can be an assistant or a helper in your school. That's what I see for you is maybe you can be a teacher's aide. And that was her vision for me. I don't see that much differently than Andrew Jackson's vision of us. Uh, well, some of you will live, hopefully. Well, I hope she can see you now somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she's long dead, but I was very crestfallen and hurt by that. And I thought about it many times. That's the best I'm going to be able to do. Well, you put it's, it seems like you've used it as a motor to uh, <laughs> to go in the opposite direction. There's a very short poem by Ray Youngbear called "One Chip of a Human Bone," uh, and, and it's a poem that seems to me to condense so much into so few words. I wonder if you could read that for us, Leanne. You know, we don't really read each other's poems this way, right? Um, and so, um, and because I know Ray. Maybe you should read it, and then we can talk about it. One chip of human bone. One chip of human bone. It is almost fitting to die on the railroad tracks. I can easily understand how they felt on their long, staggered walks back, grinning to the stars. There is something about trains, drinking, and being an Indian with nothing to lose. 
Oh, thank you. Isn't that gorgeous? It just gripped me. So this unpacking of a whole story from literally a fragment of human bone. And, and, and he is just one of our best poets. Uh, I hate to say that like it's a competition, but his work is glorious and always so profound. He's wonderful. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> now, Leanne, um, before you go, I would love to prevail on you to read a rather long but beautiful and amazing poem from this collection um, called The List We Make. I wrote this a long time ago as I was traveling with a friend in California. And at that point, of course, you passed the the, the Donner Party and where all those terrible things happened. And it just struck me that this is one of those events that uh, profoundly affected me and and what it represented. So, Could, uh, could I just um, interject to that? As a, a European, I had to look this up. And the Donner Party was a European migration to California and the People who were migrating got stuck in mountains in the snow, and it, they resorted to cannibalism. But uh, as uh, your poem says, there's more to the story than that. Yes, they did, and it was, you know, it's just one of the the secrets of our history as Americans. No one ever gets told the full story. So this is called The List We Make, Part 1. Luis and Salvador, the two Miwok guides for the 1848 Donner Party, were the first to be shot and eaten as food. William Foster had become deranged, and it is understandable why, knowing what he endured. He was terrified he would die of starvation, and Foster planned on murdering the Indians for food. Luis and Salvador promptly ran away. The party followed their tracks, and it was easy. The feet of the Indians had become so raw from exposure, all their toes had fallen off, marking their trail with blood. Foster figured if the Indians didn't lead them to safety, they could at least find their corpses to use as food. By January 9th or 10th, the Indians had suffered terrible exposure to the cold and survived on practically nothing to eat with no fire. They couldn't last like that. They gave out near a small creek, and it was here the forlorn hope came upon them. Despite argument from some and the Indians' look of terror, Foster shot the two Indians with his rifle. Though they would have not lived long, the act was horrifying. Part 2 The waiting road arrives. This time, San Francisco moves along the abyss in a black car filled with dawn and men's underwear. Again, a membrane binds us, and I crave all you offer, your hands, your poet's wrist, wrists that bleed on the page, your penis of words that penetrates my vagina like a wet weapon. 
We drape our bodies with new surroundings, but like movable sets on a theater stage, we fear hammer and nails, hunger, death, longing, and consumption. We cafe, trying to remember who we are, for each other, I mean, at Dolly's wide omelets, big cups of brown espresso, unearth old hungers, centuries old, beckon. Yes, curves us together and we breathe in the same thin air. We breathe in each other and forget all that has happened. On the road made flesh, they separate us from our fingers and toes, separate us from our bones. At first, we are swallowed whole like the wafers of God down the gullets of hungry Christians. Everything we did Everything we didn't do is digested in their dreams. Now they know us better than we knew ourselves. On the lamb again, we head north to the casinos, becoming what we fear, consumers of goods and services. We give $20 to a stranger to teach us how to attach chains so we can slip past Donner Pass, where banquet chairs pose still as icicles patiently awaiting our return. We race toward the Biltmore Motel. Our music is hard sevens. We lunch in the high Sierras and you teach me to gamble. We crash a writer's conference. A bad poet reads an ode to appetite. But this time we will not be dinner. Part three. 7,000 feet up, though Lake Tahoe stalks us, we practice our escape by devouring a repugnant pig like our killers once devoured us. At the All-American Cafe, you and Gray, to my conventional black, we dine on goose liver, pineapple, and curried ice cream. Where are Luis and Salvador now? Who the hell cares? We're following a treasure map of flesh and blood, the ghost camouflage of exotic appetites that came for Luis and Salvador has infected us all. And what of this steamy you and I, this steam, this you and I? Imprisoned by a hoary god's ravenous hunger, we have not shadows gaze, nor eyes and ears, no shadowy past, nothing but here and now, made manifest within a complexion of stars, our bodies conjoined in heaven, on earth as Luis y Salvador, conjoined in blood, and oddly enough, love. That's absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking me to read that. Uh, I haven't read it in a long time. Well, you, you did a great job. And so, Leanne, I, just thank you so much for giving us your time. I'm sorry we, that we had all kinds of gremlins to begin with. And uh, you, you progress with poise and dignity and wonderfulness in the, <laughs> in the face of appalling odds. <laughs> so thank you thank very you. much.
that was really powerful, wasn't it? Leanne Howe, I mean, she's a force to be reckoned with. I I really enjoyed that interview. And specifically, at the beginning was how you encouraged her to set the scene and you asked her about the whole background to all of this because certainly I'm quite ignorant when it comes to native nations. Sometimes I think just going in and being completely honest about your ignorance is a it's quite a good way to start a conversation because you've got no preconceptions, really. I agree. Those are quite shocking statistics, aren't they? 573 nations originally, and they just got obliterated. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I find so remarkable about this collection, really, is that it's like discovering a lost America in a way. You know, it makes you wonder what the poetry of the the US would be like. The Europeans hadn't landed. You know, it's almost like a lost continent that was full of rich Native American cultures that, you know, just been swamped with all the disease and the brutality and the all the rest of it. And also, I sort of feel, well, what if the Europeans had landed and somehow managed to work with whoever was already there? And what kind of poetry would we have had if European culture had merged with American culture, as mm. in the native nations, then what would have arisen from that? How how much richer would, would that have been and how different? We've had a reading from Joy Harjo on our show. You, you read a poem from her a, a few episodes ago. Ah. Um, she was uh, involved in editing this along with Leanne and Jennifer Forrester. And, she, you know, she's really, she's a poet laureate in the US at the moment. So, as far as I can tell, you know, Native Nations writing is certainly having a moment because they've got some really strong writers. Yes, indeed. It was really interesting how Leanne talked about, well, she talked about various aspects of their culture and the idea that, that they are generous people and they had donated to the Irish potato famine, you know, when there they were a people with very little themselves. Extraordinary story. Yeah, I was looking at some websites to do with that. It's still very much remembered in in Ireland. You said you knew the story of the Donner Party. Is that something that people know about in the US? Yes, I think obviously she does, Leanne. (laughs) Yes, it's one of those. um, It is one of those tales. It was part of that great exodus westwards, and dozens of families would all travel together in a huge train of wagons. The idea being, I suppose, safety in numbers and they had the skills. And the Donner Party, I think it was beset by issues. They thought they could make it over the, the mountains, but they set off too late in the in the year and they got stuck in the snow. And I, I think some of them, half of them got rescued or they managed to escape or they got, they got away. But those that were left, there was... Uh, they died and there were stories of cannibalism but I, I hadn't mm. I wasn't aware of the angle that Leanne took in her poem of the fact that there were these two Native American people who were in the group and were already uh, sick because of the the conditions and and somebody in the party shot them when they were already close to death but they they shot them kind of you know, in order to eat them. So moving and, on from cannibalism. <laughs> uh, it's a well-known story and it's gruesome. But yeah, it was very, I thought it was very moving the way that Leanne entered that whole story and her poem. Another thing I thought was very interesting was when you'd asked her to read someone else's poem and clearly it's kind of not the done thing. And that was interesting, wasn't it? And she asked you, she said, why don't you read it? I quite liked that. That actually worked 
quite well. She obviously liked the fact that you read it. She liked the way you read it. That sense of person's words being so intimately tied up with who they are that you feel hesitant about using them. I suppose it's just a, a different way of thinking about words than we have if one of us writes a poem. Well, that's true. But I suppose if you then compare it to a lot of spoken word, does one hear anyone else performing, uh, I don't know, Holly Manish's poems or Kate yeah. Tempest? So I suppose we do have that. That is perhaps comparable. I, I don't know. She was revisiting an old poem and she seemed to really enjoy doing that. Yes, that was lovely, wasn't it? She said yeah. she hadn't read that for a while. That was nice. It's funny when you have a conversation with somebody and it's actually a bit of an education as well. You know, I felt like she taught me a lot of stuff. Um, it was such a pleasure to talk to her. So it's about this time of the show that we tell you what we've been reading. What have you been reading, Robin? I've been reading PN Review, which is a very long established journal. I have dipped into it in the past and found it a tiny bit, well, heavy going, I suppose you might say. Quite, it's quite serious. It's mm. a sort of journal that doesn't have any pictures. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not even on the cover, you know, like the cover is actually the index. So it's quite austere. Mm. I always start by talking about what these things look like, don't I? I'm a bit obsessed with what magazines look like, but it's, it's A4 and it's perfect bound. It's just got this feel of a kind of mid-century, like something, some poster that's come out of Bauhaus or something. And I really like that. So straight away, I'm kind of, I'm in the zone. So the story about this is that I, I subscribe to various journals on a kind of uh, rolling basis, not being able to afford to subscribe to them all, but I try and give them all a go at some point. Yeah. And I subscribed to PN Review in January and I've only actually just got my first issue through, even though it's, it's published bi-monthly, but I think I must have signed up just after they'd sent out the January issue. So mm. I didn't get that. It's an interesting mix of there's definitely poetry in here, but there's lots of other stuff. I had a little count up. There are actually 34 poems by 12 poets. So they favour groups of poems by each poet rather than individual poems. And also poems get grouped together with what are called features. And features aren't exactly reviews because there are reviews as well. So that's a separate section. Sometimes they are to do with a book or something or a topic memoir, essays. Sometimes they're quite scholarly. I read through one feature, which is actually about poetry and mathematics, which, as you know, is sort of something I'm quite interested in. Oh. We've talked about maybe getting a mathematician on the show, you know, to talk about poetry and maths. You have but to talk to the mathematician. <laughs> <laughs> but on the poetry front, I was grabbed very quickly by a little group of three poems by American poet Shane McRae, who I actually hadn't, I thought I hadn't heard of him. And then, and then I realised he was actually shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot recently. But these three poems, I was uh, immediately struck by them. In fact, I read them online before I got my copy through the post. I realised I could actually look online with my subscription and see the electronic version. And that's oh, where that's I good. saw it. And, and I printed off this page with these three poems on and it is stuck next to my desk, which I do that sort of thing so rarely, but mm. I was just very inspired by them. So that's just a brief kind of 
overview of PM Review. Still lots to read there. A, a very nice long piece about Vienna, which is sort of, again, part memoir, part I don't know what. Uh, just just interesting reads, but certainly not all poetry. Oh, that's interesting. I used to um, subscribe to PM Review a frighteningly long time ago now it's sort of starting in the 80s and through the 90s ah. and it was um and i really enjoyed getting it i tried to have my poems in there but never succeeded but i always enjoyed reading the reviews in there and it was tremendously thoughtful i, I always thought it was a you know one of those aspirational places i thought if, if somebody ever talked about me in pn review then that would mean that somehow you know you'd made it. <laughs> uh, Absolutely, I, I think I've, I think I know I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I've I submitted some stuff there a few years ago and realised quite mm. quickly it was out of my league. Um, yeah. And it, it is aspirational is a good way to put it, but not in any sort of. There's something quite solid about it. I suspect it hasn't Definitely. changed in its resolve or its focus with times and trends and whatever. I think it's quite serious-minded. And I, I expect it was still the same editor, was it, in the 80s, Michael Schmidt? Yes, it was. Yeah, serious-minded is a good way of putting what I remember. You know, it was a an excellent magazine. And I've, there's been times I've popped into the poetry library and kind of uh, caught up in all magazines. And it's always one that, I, you know, I'd, I'd take seriously. Mm. And I do like the format of it as well. And yeah, and, and like you said, the austerity of there's no fripperies here. There's no pictures no. of lovely flowers or little no. animals or something. Not like. even an image on the cover. <laughs> I, I was quite sort of discombobulated by that when I got it. It took me, I don't know, a couple of days to actually realise. Oh, this is the index on the cover. I've been looking mm. inside, saying, "That's funny. It's got no index. It's like it's on the cover." <laughs> And there's something about not plastering the pictures of uh, poets all over it as well. Mm, yes, because well, uh, you know, it, perhaps there's something in that. Uh, you know, without wishing to overanalyze it, but something about forefronting the poetry rather than the poets, and it does take poetry seriously and not doesn't get too. Yes, in my opinion, when I've read it, it, it never seems to kind of become starstruck by anyone particularly. It's always quite serious interesting though i mean do magazines put pictures of poets in i mean poetry london i think oh do they yeah but the poetry book society i could never quite understand when their journal came around their um the book promoting what they had on their list mm. for that quarter the sort of full page photos of poets which i thought was a bit odd <laughs> <laughs> yeah so what's been on your uh what have you had a chance to be reading i know you've been working hard lately so what have you read i've been thinking about nothing <laughs> because as Samuel Beckett said, nothing is more real than nothing, which is always one of those favourite quotes of mine because it, it points to emptiness and kind of just being quite pretentious. It's the sort of thing you can say in pubs and sound really, really <laughs> cool. But um, I've always been fascinated by the idea of silence. When I used to read a lot more philosophy than I did do now, I had a philosophical friend and I was going for a walk in the country with him and I said, my God, it's quiet here. And his answer was, yes, it's what Heidegger calls the pre-linguistic state, which always made me laugh. You know, there was I just kind of, you know, hello flowers, <laughs> hello sky. And he was like this boffin thinking about Heidegger. But I've thought about it a lot. And uh, I was attracted to this book by John Cage, the avant-garde composer. Oh, yes. And it's called Silence, Lectures and Writings, which he wrote in, I think it was 1952. 
And he famously wrote that piece of music, 4 minutes mm. 33, which is mm. actually silence. But what is fabulous about it, I think, I mean, it's the sort of thing that provokes thinking, you know, because you have all the you know, variable orchestra or players, basically whoever you have, but they sort of just prepare themselves to play and then they just sit there for 4 minutes 33 seconds. Although it's not actually silence that the audience hears, is it? Because the idea no. is you you focus on the the ambient noises that are going on around you. That's supposed to be part of the experience, I believe. Yeah, and, and also the fact that they kind of withhold from playing, it, it's almost like that that silence could be filled with any imaginable possible music. You know, there, there is... There is something amazing about a space that can be filled. You know, it's the white page. Yeah. So anyway, in this uh, collection, Silence, Lectures and Writings, is something called Lecture on Nothing. I'm not really that interested in form. You know, I, I mean, I, I take note of it, but it's not something that some people are real form hounds, aren't they? I think I suspect you're more of a form hound than I am. Well, um, possibly. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> You know, this idea of language aspiring to the condition of music, you know, that's almost a, a description of poetry. And what he's um, written this uh, lecture in is actually four columns, and you skip from one column to another, left to right. And actually, it's almost like a 4-4 four, four bar. So the words are all, you know, have this meter as you go from column to column. And some of the columns are blank, so that's like a pause between the words. So essentially, he's he's structuring how it should be read in terms of inserting silences. And it's full, like music, full of repetitions in phrases. And as you go on towards the end, there are more and more sort of snowballing repetitions. And I find it just was quite interesting to think of this as a poem, you know, because you could read it as a poem. It looks. It sounds like it looks like a poem on the page. It does. It looks like a very complicated sort of four-column poem. And a very long um, one. Yeah, quite a, you know, several pages of it. But what I'll do is I'll just read a snatch of it. It's kind of funny as well. It's sort of the repetitions almost become humorous. So just a piece at, at random from about three quarters of the way through. It says, Here we are now at the beginning of the fifth unit of the fourth large part of this talk. More and more, I have the feeling that we are getting nowhere, slowly. As the talk goes on, we are getting nowhere, and that is a pleasure. It is not irritating to be where one is. It is only irritating to think one would like to be somewhere else. Here we are now, a little bit after the beginning of the fifth unit of the fourth large part of this talk. More and more we have the feeling that I am getting nowhere, slowly, as the talk goes on. So that's a little snatch. In my mind, it occupies that space where um, it comes across as a bit like the plays of Samuel Beckett, which for me are very, very close to poetry. Hmm. But if you're interested in the relationship between music and silence and language... It's quite a provocative and interesting little thing to, to read. Hmm. It may drive you a bit crazy, but in a good way. Where did you come across this? Well, I bought it because I thought I'd look really clever and interesting carrying it. 
it was only some years later that I began to actually open it and read it. And imagine my surprise when I found it was really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Shame you weren't carrying it when you met your mate in the wood, you know, when he started quoting Heidegger, you could have whipped that out and said, well, actually, yeah, as John Cage says. (laughs) It sounds like a kind of um, meditation, almost like putting a, a meditative state into words or maybe pulling you into a meditative state as you read the words. Yeah, I think he was very into, you know, Zen and that sense of Zen smacks you over the head with a a kind of realisation about the world which generally stuns you into silence. This idea of embracing silence and absence fills his work and and I find that's really interesting. Actually, this kind of dovetails into a pet hate. Oh, are we on to that now? (laughs) I don't know, I just spontaneously thought of things that I can't stand Come on then, let's do it, thorny issue Yeah, I can't, what drives me absolutely, I love haiku But I love Japanese haiku and haiku rooted in the idea of Zen So you have this kind of, this idea and a dislocation in it Like, you know, the turn in a, a sonnet or whatever, but a dislocation that enables you to see things and reframe things anew. And it's very, that sort of moment of um, uh, what's called satori, that kind of a flash of kind of reframing the world, which is born out of a shock of a juxtaposition of images, is something I love about haiku. And what I detest about haiku is gaijin haiku, sort of like this kind of idea of, haiku written by people that think it's 17 syllables of anything. I just think, what? don't, unless you understand <laughs> that, that it's supposed to be a trigger to into a kind of a trigger into silence or, or some kind of wonder or something. It's not just 17 syllables. Just stop it. So, <laughs> thank you. Thank goodness I, I can't claim to have written any haiku. <laughs> it probably would have been that sort, actually. It's like, oh, what's haiku? Oh, 17 syllables. Oh, yeah, right. Well, that's good to know. Clearly, you've well, it, got a handle on what it what it ought to be. Well, I don't I mean, you know, everyone has their kind of prejudices. But whenever I see sort of haiku competitions and I look at them and uh, read them and I just think none of these are haiku, <laughs> they're, they're all 17 syllable things. I'm probably going to get hate mail for this. Well, actually, I, don't, hate mail. <laughs> well, I don't really know anything about haiku except for the syllable thing. And also, is it supposed to be to do with nature or is that another ridiculous kind of reduction of, of a beautiful and nuanced form? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not setting myself up as a haiku expert. No, but you clearly have a, a you know what it is. Well, well I have opinions is, about it. Having uh, opinions about things and knowing about them are two different things, well, really. But <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> but yes, they're often invested in um, natural imagery, which kind of have deeper resonances and stand in Japanese culture for uh, other stuff. I'm going to sound ignorant if I carry on, so I won't. <laughs> 